0: 1 Timothy, in preparation for a few things that we're doing as a church. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, and I want to read the first verse of chapter 4. Timothy writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, I know I'm right there in the middle of a sentence, but there's a purpose in going there because that is where Paul is landing. That's where Paul is landing. And in the weeks to come, we will get there. But today and in the next few weeks, I want to talk specifically about the church. About the church. Because in our culture, we have a grand misapplication and understanding of the church. And I've talked about it for 20 years and I've talked about it for 11, almost 12 years now as a congregation. And I think that it's worth being reminded what the church is. Sometimes we can understand what things are by understanding what things are not. I'm not necessarily a fan of that type of teaching, but in some instances it is very profitable. It is profitable in the sense that we know that what we see oftentimes is not what is biblical. But what do we see? We see people coming to church. Now, we do come to church, right? That's an obvious thing. It's not like we just hang out in the ether and all of a sudden we hear this voice and it's our pastor who has some type of psychic ability to talk to us. No, the very word church is a misnomer anyway. It comes from the origin of the word Kirk, which means institution, and so on. But the biblical word ecclesia means gathering and it's a very common word that is used in the first century for any type of gathering if it was a picnic ecclesia if it was a church service ecclesia if it was government ecclesia if it was a town hall meeting ecclesia and so when we talk about the gathering of the people of christ it's explicitly dealing with getting together Physically, face-to-face, one-on-one. And there are instructions in the New Testament, as we've seen through the years, that we're going to be reminded of on what we're supposed to be doing when we do gather. Now, if we do these things, these are requirements according to the commands of Christ, according to the doctrines of Christ. There are certain things that are non-negotiable. For example, the Bible will tell us in Colossians and Ephesians that we are to get together and to sing praises unto the Lord together. And that those praises, the songs that we sing, ought to be firm and, fa- and, and have a foundation of doctrine, of teaching. They ought to teach us something and remind us of something concerning God and his character and his work in the gospel, concerning the person and the work of Jesus, etc. So that when we sing, we're telling God of who he is. We don't need to flatter God in our worship. Because God is not flattered. God knows who he is and he is the greatest of all things. That's what the word God means, the greatest and highest of all things. So therefore, when we return that which is about God to him, it is an honor to him to hear of himself, to hear of his work of redemption, of his wisdom and so forth. Another thing that the Bible tells us that we must do is we must be in prayer for one another. We must be in prayer for the things that are uh, imminent in our life. We must be in prayer because prayer, as we've already looked at in First Timothy, is one of the primary ways that we show our submission and the necessity of God's sovereignty over our lives and its circumstances. Because as Americans, we're all little kings and queens. We all feel that burn, we feel that edge of being in charge of knowing that we have rights and liberties, and we do, and we praise God for those. But when it comes to the economy of grace and the economy of the sovereignty of God, there is no king but Christ. So we come in prayer because if all we can do is pray, we've done much because we have laid it all in the hands of Christ. We have laid it all in the hands of the very one who from his mouth spoke and all things came into being as they are and who orders all things as a picture of showing that he alone can order salvation in the very nature of creation through the sending of the Son to take on the natural body of humanity and to live and to die. Not just as an example, but as an offering that paid a debt. We also should be looking to serve one another. The scripture teaches that the purpose of the pulpit is to teach the church about who God is and what God has done and to teach the church what the apostles, according to Christ, have instructed the church since its inception. So that we come together and we learn these things and be reminded of these things to clarify and make distinctions on who Jesus really is. To make distinctions on what is it that we're really called to? What is this gospel all about? What is grace? What does it mean when Paul says we are justified by faith? And so on and so forth. We can learn these things, but the next question is why? What difference does it make? It makes a difference in two ways. The first way is it makes a difference that we are to praise God for His glorious grace. So when we learn about Him and His work in salvation, we thank Him for it. That's the, that's the supernatural outcome of our natural lives. Thank you, God, because we know from what we have been saved. What is it? His righteous justice. Jesus Christ has taken that in our place. And then we also learn that because we are recipients of grace, because we are objects of mercy, then we are commanded by the love of God in and through the apostles to love one another and to serve Christ through our service to one another. That in In order to love Christ, we must love one another. And it's not generally speaking, love everybody, though we do have that commandment, even our enemies, even those knuckleheads who hate Christ himself. We are to love them. We are to give when they are in need. We are to help those around us as we have opportunity when they approach us. We are to pray for unbelievers and for false teachers and for everything else under the sun that we may abhor because while God may abhor it in his righteous judgment, God does not disclose divine eyes to his people. We must love everyone as if they may be a child of God. Even as I had a conversation with my eight-year-old last week about angels, she just now realized that angels took the form of people in the the Bible. She goes, do we know any angels? (laughs) No. No. And I explained to her, you know, angels aren't just living down here like a neighbor, but they may appear as a person to you, and we may, as the scripture says, unawares entertain an angel. And then that opened up a different comfort, like what, sing a song or juggle or, I mean, uh, no. I said, but it wouldn't be someone you knew. Oh, so if a stranger, a stranger that I've never seen again, probably was an angel. I said, no, that's not the point. The point is this. You can't argue with that child because it's always something different. But we come and we understand that the scripture says we are to love one another and to serve one another. And that if we say we love Christ, we must then serve and love one another. So the pulpit then teaches the church to do the work of the ministry. So our gathering together is compulsory. It is a command of God. It's not something that we just, eh, come to church, eh, went to church, eh, did my spiritual thing. No, it's a command of God. But it's not a command of God unto salvation, it's a command of God because of grace. It's a means to which God's grace, as Brother Trey so awesomely spoke by the Lord last week, talks about, that the scripture teaches us that the grace of God is once and for all to the saints. It's an effective work, it is God's blessing to the church and all the different parts of how he continues to work in us by his goodwill and pleasure, that's grace. And so being together with the church is a means to which God's grace is administered to you. A means to which you are prayed for. A means to which you learn to serve. A means to which you put the priority of your Christian life at the top. Not so that we can plug into programs and things of that nature, though there's nothing wrong with those things if they're not in lieu of what is commanded. Nothing wrong with those. But they are driven by necessity and talent, not Any other purpose. These are not evangelistic tools according to the scripture. But they can be incredible tools to enjoy life together and to connect with people. So we do this. We come together so that we as a people gather together. That is what the church really is. A people who are in covenant commitment with one another face to face, name to name, to worship together, to pray together, to learn together, and to live together according to the gospel. Of grace, sovereign and free. And so, two weeks ago, when I preached out of this text and we looked at where Paul is going, teaching the elders of the church now, transmission to Timothy, an elder, he told Timothy, I want you, the elder, to know what it ought to be and how people ought to behave. And that's why I'm writing this letter. And the occasion, for those of you who haven't been with us or are are tracking, you know, this is week 31, I guess, um, of this text. You know, the occasion for this letter was that there were a lot of people in Ephesus who were upsetting the apple cart, who were causing a lot of stress and problems, who were disturbing the peace of the gospel by bringing in new ideas, philosophies, theologies. And we don't know the details of that. Why? Because Paul never makes a big deal about the details of false teachings. He just says, this is the truth. These people aren't teaching the truth. Here's a couple of examples. Now moving right along, this is what I want you to do. What I want you to do is submit to the scripture, submit to Christ through me and the other apostles in such a way that your attention is not given to the falsehoods, but your attention is given to the commands of Christ. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you think about where we were in January of 2020 as a church. We were going to have a members meeting in the spring. We were going to start all sorts of new things and ideas. And, 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 you know, some of you were like, hey, I want to do this. And I want to be a part of this service to the church. And then people started getting sick. Then COVID happened and everything. We just sort of shut down. And what happened when we shut down? And we didn't ever stop meeting. Some of you met throughout the whole thing. And that's great. But some of you didn't because of obvious reasons. But the church as a whole, by and large, was not gathering. The church wasn't being the church. What happened? Ministry failed. I'm going to say that again. Ministry, what does that mean? The needs of the church failed. Your needs, my needs, all of our needs. Now, we did our best. We did our best. But that's what happens when things get out of focus. When we start looking at the negative, when we start looking at the problem, when we start looking at the issue, and it consumes us, and we don't follow the commands of Scripture according to unity and order and peace, what happens? The very thing that we cannot let go, goes, doesn't it? I mean, it's the same thing with health, my physical health. I don't know why the Lord has brought me to these places. But God helped me. God, help me. I have never suffered the wrath of God on the cross. And, that's the, and believe it or not, that's the, most, that's the ple- most pleasant thing I can think of when I'm in pain. Is this is awful, but I haven't suffered the wrath of God. So I can endure this. And you think about it for a minute. We get together as a church, we're doing the work of the ministry, we are doing all that we can, and that's what God has called us to, that we might meet each other's needs. Ministry is meeting needs. Ministry is taking care of one another. And what? Most importantly, as I've already said, prayer. And this is just precursor thoughts to the introduction, which is 80% of the sermon, then the segue into next week, which will be... A few minutes. (laughs) That's what happens when you have topical expansion of a text. Meeting the needs of prayer, first and foremost. Then secondly, caring enough to put priority to the church family, second only to your household. Now think about that for a second. If we're praying for one another, and beloved, I used to be able to do it all in my head. I used to get through preaching... And when we were packed out, I could have 25 names and faces in my, f- in my head that weren't here. And before I went to bed that night, I would have reached out. I can't do that anymore. I can't do that anymore. So I write it all down. And I used to use note cards, and I can't use note cards because I forget where I put them. So now I have a notebook, and it stays on my desk, and I don't move it. I did move it a couple of weeks ago, and I couldn't find it for three days. And all I did was move from this desk to this desk. In the same room. Still couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. You see, so don't think you have to be a super person with a super mind to minister to people in prayer. Write it down. Just write it down. Who are we praying for? We're praying for the top of mind next fire that comes on social media. Beloved, that's not ministry. Yes, pray for those people. That's a great opportunity. But there needs to be an intentional prayer for the church family. There needs to be an intentional interest in our congregation with itself. And we're going to talk about that today. Look at Paul. What does he say? I hope to come to you soon. Why was Paul's interest with Ephesus? Because that's what Christ commands That's what Christ does. He presses our hearts that Paul was suffering. Paul was stressed out. Look at all the, the pastoral epistles. Paul is most likely in prison during all of them. Paul is suffering. Paul is sick. Paul's body began to fail when he's writing Timothy. He's in prison and he's sick, and there's a person amongst the, amongst the body, amongst the churches of Asia Minor, Palestine, which is where all this took place. The churches amongst Palestine who are what? Who there are people amongst these who are ministering to Paul. Who are they? The Ephesians, the Philippians? Others like that. They're concerned with Paul. Why? Because Paul is sick and in need. What does Paul tell them? I appreciate your interest in me. I appreciate your desire to help me. I appreciate your concern for me. It makes me joyful that God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, has imposed in your heart a concern for me. Because, see, that's what God the Spirit does, that's what He does. And so Paul's not only here but other places. When he couldn't go, he sent someone else. He sent Epaphroditus. He sent Timothy. He sent them places. Why? Because he couldn't call them. He couldn't check on them. We live in such a way, technologically, that we never have to not know what's going on. And this isn't a sermon about hiding from the church. (laughs) But it's what we do, naturally, right? You know, we don't have to tell everything, but beloved, I need your prayers for my physical health. And so does my wife. She's not well and has not been. We need prayers. And God's purposes will stand. Anything else we need, I promise you we'll let you know. If you see me digging holes or doing any outside work or climbing or lifting, shoot me. Please. Please. Maybe that wasn't kuth I shouldn't have said that. Come over there and slap me with a rake or something. But Paul had an interest. He wanted to be there. He didn't want to just write a letter, send a note, make a telephone call. He wanted to be there because there's something different about face-to-face interaction. There's something different. When I text you and you say, everything's good, just pray for us. Okay, I'm going to do that. When I say, what do you need? And you go, prayer only. And that is true, and it may be what you need, but when we're standing together, it's a lot easier to say, Pastor, I don't have any shoes. It's a lot easier to say, you know what, my lights have been shut off. It's a lot easier to say, My marriage is in shambles. It's a lot easier to say, I I am in so much sickness that I can't cut my grass. You see, it's easier to say, I haven't eaten in a week because I don't have groceries. It's easier to say. It's easier to say, I just need to talk to somebody because I'm losing my mind. Paul teaches us, not just through command, but by his own life, that being together is the point. It's the reason that the letters were written. There are some who can't be, but most of us can be. Beloved, we need each other. We cannot survive this life in this world without God's people. And you are needed, whether you know it or not. You are gifted, whether you know it or not. There is somebody who, has, who God has ordained for you to minister to in some experience that you've had or for some gift or some treasure that you may obtain for their purpose, for God's purpose in their life. So here we have this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing you, Timothy, so that you, if I am not able, if I do, not, if I do delay, you will know how to teach the church how one ought to behave. That's the purpose. And then he calls the, the church, I don't like the way this is translated, the household of God. But it doesn't matter. I'm not going to split hairs. But let's just say the house of God and the symbolism of the temple, the symbolism of the pillars, as we talked about, we see that God dwells with his people. God dwells in his people. This is another reason why the local assembly is the local assembly for a reason. While we're in covenant relationship with, some, with each other. Because we, when we are together, Christ is with us. He's with us when we're separate too, but the emphasis of the Bible teaches us that where two or more are gathered together, He is there with us. In other words, when we are praying together, our Lord is together. We are not just gathering together so that we can see how each other bathe and dress nicely. We're gathering together so that we may, in Christ, be one body because He is our head, as we'll see, as we've already seen. This is all review. The church of the living God, the gathering of the living God, the house of God. If we remember what Paul taught in Hebrews, we see that God put a manager, Moses, over the house of God. But there is one true builder and it is Jesus Christ, the head. The house of God is not a building, it's a people. The family of faith. The church of the living God. But my emphasis today is going to be on this specific thing, which I've already taught, but I want to reemphasize it. Why? Because we've got two families coming into membership in two Sundays. First Sunday of August. And we've got others who are petitioning for membership as well. And it's not flippant. It's not a thing that we take lightly as a church family. People are welcome to come and hang out and, and, and be a part of our congregation and the public services all they want. But there is a level of intimacy that they will miss. But to be a member of the church, that, it's a special thing. The scripture teaches us that the church is a pillar, holds up the roof, holds up the structure, and buttress of the truth. The buttress, I tried to explain it in the way of a load-bearing wall holds up the structure. Ruby and I were sitting in the truck week before last, and there was an old building made out of cinder block in Statesboro, and she's sitting there, and she goes, How many bricks is that? So she does the math, and then we get the average weight of the bricks, because she wondered how much that wall weighed. It was like 60 tons. Crazy. Wow, if that fell down, how does it stand up? All the other walls... And the structures and the trusses and the roof and everything holds it together. The church is like the wall that holds it all up. Holds what up? The truth. So today we're focusing on the church as the buttress of the truth. The thing that holds the truth up. I want you to think about this for a second. Because here's where a lot of us go. In the academics, like myself, we get really... Oh yeah, the truth, pull out the systematics, pull out the Greek. Let's get busy on holding down the truth. Let's staple that stuff to the floor and lay on it so the wind doesn't blow it away. And that's a good, zealous appeal. It's a good thing to want to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. It's a necessity. The problem comes is when people think they can ignore the commands of Christ in unity and peace and obedience at the cost of what they think is divine zeal at the antithesis of obedience for a doctrine. Now, I'll explain that a little bit clearer as I go on. Simply put, there are some people in this life who go, well, you don't have justification, right? And I hate you. Demonic. Let me say that again: D, ma, Nick. Three syllables. That's not my interpretation of that. That's the Lord Jesus through the Apostle Paul. It is not of the flesh when we hate someone who's wrong. And the church is not called to that. That is not buttressing the truth, buttressing the truth. Is acting like Jesus and holding to true doctrine. Both and or none at all. I want you to hear that. And beloved, it's not just in the church, is it? We see that type of behavior everywhere. We see that type of behavior in political points of view. We see that stuff in economists. We see that. I mean, I'm a fanboy of quantum physics. It's not healthy for me. I promise you it's not healthy. Don't go, it's just fun. To consider crazy stuff like that. And there are zealots and angry people in every discipline, but they cannot be part of the local family of faith. People who are angry, bullied, zealots concerning the things of God cannot be part of the family of faith, pastors included. Pastors who beat the pulpit, scream and yell, like I've done before. Many times through many years and seasons. But it must not be. Because Scripture teaches us otherwise. The Spirit says, for one, in later days... Expressly, See, this is Paul. He's being very careful to remind Timothy that God the Spirit is working through his writing, that it's not just Paul's own interpretation of things, but it's God himself writing through this letter. Some will depart from the faith in this way, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. See, a deceitful spirit will tell you that you're doing the work of God when you're ignoring the commands of God a deceitful spirit will tell you that you don't have to worry about true doctrine because you're loving one another. You see, it goes on both sides, doesn't it? So we're never flippant, but we're not belligerent. It's okay. It is okay because God is sovereign. And if we follow the prescription that the Scriptures show us, the prescription of Scripture, that's funny, that the Scriptures show us we will find peace and we will see God's resolution of these things to the praise of His glory beyond any human wisdom, beyond the sharp pastor who can organize people well, or the great teacher who can bring peace and unity in all circumstances. God doesn't share His glory with man, except through the man Jesus Christ, to the praise of it. So there's a lot of Ps that will come out of my head today. The point of the church, the power of the church, the picture of the church, all this stuff. It just comes so easy. Alliteration just comes so easy. But they're not outlined, so don't worry about writing them down. But what is the point of the church? What is the point of the church? When Paul talks about the church being the buttress of the truth, what is the point? Well, that's it. A display of the wisdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, we see that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed to the principalities, the powers of this present age, of the heavenly places, which according to Ephesians 6, is the devil and the demons, the fallen and non-elect angels. And so we see very clearly that the point of the church is to show God off. Just as the, the psalmist writes, "Your heavens, the heavens declare your glory and the work of your hands... So does the body of Christ declare your glory, not in the systematized reality of gospel theology, but in the reality of living as gospel recipients. I think I preached it this way some years ago, that what Paul is trying to simply express in Ephesians 3 is that the devil knows the power of God in redemption because the church is. The church exists. And the church, beyond all that which is prudent and rational and logical in the eyes of most people in the world, does and behaves in such a way together in love and unity that baffles. You mean that, pa- that man said that to you? You mean that person did this to you? And y'all are still friends? We're not friends. We're siblings. We're not friends. We're, we're connected in the blood of Christ We're friends also. But that's a weak word compared to brothers and sisters. The point of the church to display the wisdom of God, the power of God in the church is His effectual grace that before the foundations of the world, God determined, decreed, etc., whatever word you want to put there in your theological envelope, to create the world and its infinite measure... To create a people for himself to show his power in redemption. Now think about that for a second. The power of God to do that which no creature can do. In uprightness, in innocence, Adam and Eve could not stand in righteousness. That was the intention of God. To show no creature can do what only he can do. And we could talk about the church as we stand before God and as we stand before men. Who are we before God? Paul even talks about it, the mystery of godliness. This is the mystery of godliness that Jesus Christ in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And this this is the segue into this. Some people are going to depart from the faith. After he's already told Timothy, thus the elders of the future churches, what a leader ought to be and how to qualify and measure a leader's qualifications concerning their oversight of the church and their service to the church. You notice that, right? There are two offices in the church. The office of teacher-overseer, who prays and teaches and oversees uh, oversees the instruction to the church in order to do the work of the ministry, and then the office of deacon who engages the love of Christ in the church in practical ways. without which the church isn't truly living according to Christ. This picture of Christ that is the head of the church, this is a picture of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal God who gave himself over to be crucified. The eternal God who stepped out of glory and took on humanity. He created a woman named Mary according to the prophecies and created a womb and in her womb created a zygote and in that womb. He made himself a body and he was born into the world. This is unbelievable. And here is the God-man born as an infant. Growing, learning to walk, learning to read. But yet completely and fully and truly and always God in every sense and in truly and fully, completely and always human The church is the picture of Christ. Marriage is a picture of the church. The position of the church before God. We are pure. We are free. We are perfect. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are justified. We are beloved. We are saved. We are redeemed. We are adopted. We are holy. Because Christ is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our sanctification. There is nothing left for us to be that Christ has not already credited to us. So now here's the juggle, right? Here's the struggle. Oh, I'm holy? Yes, because of Christ you are. I still sin, absolutely, but you're not guilty before the Father of those sins because your guilt has been put on Christ. That's why it's so horrible when we willfully sin against Christ because He's already died for these things. As Paul would say, it like sets him up to shame again. But there's no condemnation before the Father. The church is pure. For those who are born again, for those who have been given to the Lord Jesus, for those who have been granted faith, for those however whatever whatever adjective that you want to use out of the apostolic writing, it will show you this. This is how we are before the Lord. But then also before man, we are To exhibit, even to the devils, the love of Christ. Passion and zeal, as I've said earlier, are not always from God. They must be arrested. How do I know if my zeal and boldness is of God? If it's arrested by the command of humility, calmness, quietness, meekness, and service. I don't know if I can repeat all those again, but if it's arrested... By the Spirit of God in those ways. By the commands of Christ. That is the doctrine of Christ. Not just who He is and His salvation, but what He asks of His people and what He has promised to do in us imperfectly in this life. And I say imperfectly because, beloved, I don't care how good we're doing. It only takes a second for us to realize that we still have a flesh. We could love everything all the time, walking around, singing like a Broadway musical from the 50s. And then, boom, flush it all down the toilet. That's why we know that we stand before God in this promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter the motive or the mission, when our words and our desires and our actions violate the clear instruction of Scripture, it is of the flesh. And when it is of the flesh, it is not of the Spirit of God. It is of the Spirit of the world. Okay? And that instruction, as we see it in the New Testament, even with the most heinous of people, look at what the Corinthians were doing. (laughs) I mean, beloved, if our children acted like Corinth, we'd go to jail. You know? That, I mean, there'd be some problems. yet what did Paul say? Paul said, "I'm going to come down there with a stick, and I'm going to beat y'all's butts. I want to call you mature, but you're not your children. you're babies in the Lord, and you're not living according to grace. You're not living according to the gospel. You should be ashamed, not celebrating, but he never condemned them. Even when we dismiss someone from the fellowship of the church because they refuse to submit to the simple instruction of being patient and peaceable. Because none of us are without sin. But when people want to disrupt life and make demands and make conditions on obedience, we cannot fellowship with them. And we have that blessing from the Lord to say, Okay, and you go your way and we're here when you're ready. We love you. We desire to see you reconciled. And we understand the church is a church of praise, as I said this morning as we opened up. We are to praise God for His grace, for His glorious grace. And our praises and our prayers are in vain if our lives and our affections are not following after the gospel. Beloved, let me tell you something. (laughs) Suffering hones this in us. When we stress out, when we suffer, it really sharpens that up. Because we learn to pray simply. We learn to just cry out to God in desperation. But there are people in the church. And the church is about people. And the church is about being around people who are not like us. Who sometimes don't don't teach like us or think like us or live like us or think like us or worship like us. But beloved, let me tell you something. There are all sorts of people in the church. And there are specifics that I'll talk about now as we segue into the actual message of this morning. The buttress of the truth. The Lord shows His wisdom in our lives and the truth of Christ in doctrine. Who are among the gatherings? Well... There's a whole big list that I could come up with, but let's just keep it simple. Let's say that there are several, and here's some that I want to focus on this morning. When we gather together, amongst us are definitely the regenerate people, people who have been born of the Spirit who profess Christ. And then there are also some who profess Christ who are not born again, but they profess Christ. And then there are others who are interested In spiritual things. And they're just sort of... They don't know where they stand. They don't know. They don't... Where do we see that? That was the majority of the New Testament gatherings in the public eye. Many, when the apostles would teach and the elders would teach and the apostles were there in Jerusalem and Antioch and other places, there was always a crowd that gathered around and I like to call them, you know, they might have been nosy, they might have been interested, they might have been seeking something spiritual... Nosy folks, interested folks. There's probably folks that are political. Man, that church is preaching my politics. I think I'm going to listen a little bit. No. You won't, you won't like the politics of grace. Because they'll, they disavow any political standing. Because not, we're not of this world. Self-righteous folks are part of the church. Folks that are like, you know what? I'm a godly influence. I'm going to go straighten that church out. You ever met some? Yeah, unfortunately. And we've been those people before, right? Some of us. I can't say all of us, but I mean, some of us. I've been that person. In my 20s. Oh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. Let me have that pulpit two Sundays. I'll straighten that trash out. God should have struck me with lightning, burnt my left ear off. What happened? <laughs> I'm not even going to tell the story. You got a toilet I can clean? I've never preached again, probably. Suspicious folks. They like to come to the church. They like to gather with the church. Hmm, something going on down there. Hmm. I wonder what. Here's our motto in that. Mind your business. See, being a pure and holy people is about the work of Christ. Being a righteous gathering is about the work of Christ. We tolerate, and I say that word very loosely, but we tolerate each other's sin to a degree until it imposes a bad reputation or division in the context of the local assembly. We are not to condemn each other. Christians cannot be judgmental. And the very ones who will say, well, Jude, such and such, Mark, and Mark again. You're not an elder. And you don't have oversight of the church. It's not your business. Mind your business. And when God appoints you an elder of the church, then collectively we can make a decision on how we handle issues like that. Privately to save face with the world. And to give glory to God in our actions and behaviors. And how we reconcile differences and reconcile behavior peaceably, and in love. And then there are sometimes people with self-interest like charlatans. They want a platform. I go to that ministry, I can get a platform. I go to that ministry, I'll get a position. I go to the ministry, I'll... They're charlatans. But ultimately, we need to focus on the fact that in these, all of these things, there are only two groups of people. There are the regenerate people and the unregenerate people. That's it. There are people who are born again, who belong to Christ, and believe, and people who say they believe but they don't, and that is always going to be the case. Nothing will change that, and we do a, a, a fair job, I believe, of really spending time with people and talking with them and getting to know them, and more importantly, getting them to understand how we operate as a as a church family and what our polity is all about and what we expect. And I've not talked about that over the last few years just because it's just been like a tornado we're going to start talking about that a little bit more because the instruction here requires it what is it to be a church member we do a fairly decent job of of seeing that someone's profession is not superficial that they really do believe what they say they believe and we're also patient with those who don't understand everything But we don't compromise. We don't have false gospel professors as a part of the church membership. We're not going to do that. That would be silly. Nah, I don't believe the gospel like that. Well, come on in anyway. Kick your feet up and call yourself a brother. That doesn't work. But what does work? The testimony alone of Christ and His work and the gospel of free and sovereign grace as we articulate it in a simple way and then secondly, to become a member of the church, not only do you have to, in some sense, profess to be born again and believe the truth, but you have to be willing to submit to the instruction of the scripture. In everything. In everything. And for some people, they go, Oh, I hear what you're saying. Now you're going to tell us how to dress and tell us what to look at and tell us what to read and tell us what to eat and tell us what to drink and tell us what not to do. No, we're not. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever been told that. From this pulpit. I've had private meetings where I've said. That's probably going to hurt you. That's probably going to destroy your marriage. That's probably going to wreck your finances. That's probably. There's a difference in shepherding counsel. And wise counsel. Versus dominating. Let the word teach us. What does the word teach us? We are to submit to the word of God in all matters in peace and unity. Seeking good, believing all things in love. Love is not easily provoked. We're to bear with one another in love. This is not a conditional matter. Well, I'm going to bear with you until XYZ. i Z. I'm going to bear with you unless X, Y, Z. No. You who are born of God by grace who God in His mercy sacrificed His Son in your place, are going to bear with each other. Is it easy? It is for me. I don't know what y'all's problem is. No, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. It's the hardest thing we will ever do. And you know what the hardest thing is? You know what holds it all up? Like if all of this stuff was all of this impossibility to get along with people and to love people if it just stayed from the from the neck to the top of the head you know what that lever that holds it all in pride pull it out let it go it's pride the truth the church buttresses the truth the church holds up the truth in both our lives together in unifying reconciliation and living and ministry and doctrinal positions. And anytime we see anything out of the ordinary or, or falling away in any of those areas, we gently come back as elders because that's our responsibility as elders. We gently come back and we reinstruct and we realign and we peaceably keep everybody else out of it so that we can fix it and get it. To where the person who has caused an offense is reconciled without damage. I mean, think about it. Who among us has not sinned? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) No, it's, it's not okay to be harsh with one another and to do things according to the flesh. Because we think we're zealous for righteousness. There's one group of people in the New Testament that did that often, and they were the Pharisees. And Jesus says this of them, that they were dogs, broods of snakes, whitewashed tombs, empty vessels, worthless, unclean, children of Satan. So what does the church do to hold up the gospel in life and in truth? We hear the word. He who has ears, let him hear. How many times have we heard the Lord say these things? In John chapter 10, we see that the scripture teaches us that those who have the spirit of Christ will hear the words of Christ. So when you test, and see it's hard when it's not completely verse by verse contextual, isn't it? You have to, in some sense, you have to put a lot of trust in what I'm saying. You have to agree with it in a way that's trusting me. But I call foul on that. Trust me as I'm faithful to the text. So if I'm using a verse out of context in such a way that it creates not what that text is saying, then you learn it right. He who has ears will hear the voice of his shepherd. He will hear the truth when he knows it, when she knows it. The believer will hear and go, wow, that resonates with the Spirit of God in me. And then when the conscience, when our conscience says this doesn't resonate, we test it based on Scripture, not based on our conscience. Our conscience is a warning light on the dash of a car. If something starts blinking, we could have the perpetual left on. The blinker. If something else is blinking, it could be that our oil pressure is down or it could be that our engine is about to blow up. But we just pause a minute, we look at it and we go, oh, it's time for an oil change. We don't turn left over the, over the, over the cliff and go, oh, my car's in a mess, ah, and just blow everything out of proportion because a light comes on. We check it. Our conscience is the light. We check it. What am I upset about? What do I need to do about it? What does the word of God say? Okay, I don't follow my conscience. I follow Christ. Ridiculous people will say that their conscience is their God. Proverbs says that's foolish. Jesus says the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. So the church upholds the word because it can hear it, the truth. And then we'll we'll hear the full word of truth. We'll hear the teaching. So what I'm saying, according to Paul's writing to Timothy and Paul's writing to other places, will resonate with you as truth because the spirit of God that you have is the same spirit that I have. And even though it may aggravate our senses and it may upset our pride, we eventually will open that lever and let that pride go. Beloved, it's a killer. It comes before the fall. We'll hold fast to the word of which is life. Philippians chapter. Oh, goodness. I could read the first two chapters of Philippians right now. I won't, but I'll... You should do that. Paul talks about it, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, he says, I will be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for all you making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that He, Jesus Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way, Paul says, about all of you, because I hold you in my heart. I love you, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and my defense of the gospel and my confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. See, uh, they stole it from Paul. How I yearn. What is he saying? God is my witness. That I stand on the theological foundations of this truth. Blah, 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 blah. No. As God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that all of the love that you have for each other will abound more and more with all knowledge And all discernment that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. we We could go to Colossians and Peter and everything else and look at all those things. The church is the buttress of truth, not just in its doctrinal purity concerning theological things of salvation, but also in its doctrinal purity concerning the things of Christ and His nature and character as the example of Christian living as a people together for His glory. And when Paul tells the Philippians that they may be blameless in the day of Christ, he's not talking about their salvation. He's talking about that they don't have to stand before Christ and go, Boy, I was a knucklehead my whole life. What a waste. Well done. My good and faithful servant. Paul goes on to say to the Philippians that I... I want you to know what has happened to me served to advance the gospel. There are people who are now preaching the gospel. And that everything that's happened to me has been taught and throughout the entire imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for the sake of the Lord. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Then he says, but some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to hurt me in my imprisonment. (laughs) What then? What are they doing, really? Only in every way, no matter why they're preaching, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Hurt me if you want, preach the truth. That's what he's saying. The body of Christ defends the gospel even in suffering, even in turmoil, even in division, by holding fast to love and unity as well as the truth. That's what Paul's teaching us there about the Philippian church. And we stand and buttress the truth also because we will have a full understanding as we learn. Paul would tell the church I, I, I referred to this in my opening statements in Colossians chapter 3 where we're supposed to put on and do and as we gather together put on then as God's chosen ones holy, Colossians 3.12 holy and beloved put on compassionate hearts put on kindness put on humility put on meekness put on patience bearing with one another I don't want you to take my word for it. Listen to the scripture. And if one has a complaint, if one has a problem, if one is hurt, if one's angry, if one is, has been uh, you know, maligned, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things that I've said to you, you must put on love, Paul says. Because love is that which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Well, I don't have to love an humble... Yes, you do. You have to love the unregenerate church goer. You have to love the sinner. Because that's who we are. And let the peace... Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule, rule... Hear that word, rule in your hearts... How is it that we can have doctrine ruling our hearts to such a degree that it causes hatred for other people? If we know that we have been saved by grace, if we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has said it is finished on our behalf, if we know that God the Father has satisfied His righteous judgment against us in Jesus Christ and His flesh, then how in the world are we able to sit there and know that it rules in our hearts and hate someone else who may or may not even have that peace? I believe that the true gospel-aware believer who is growing in grace and is not a baby in the crib in diapers being nursed. When they examine the doctrines of grace, when they examine the gospel of grace, they are more compassionate with unbelievers and people who are wrong and people who are lost than they are with believers. I believe it should be that way. Sometimes it's not, is it? They don't love. Beloved, we can't let that be. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Teaching and admonishing. That's a warning. One another, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word, and whatever you do in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him there's a lot there but I think it's a good cap on the end of this reality that we are the buttress of the truth in truth and in life and in deed to which we do not two things that we do not conflate clarified even more so last Sunday we don't conflate our righteousness imputed with our growing in grace They are two very distinct things. And there are many of us who will never really grow up a lot in grace. And so those who are mature endure and teach and gently persuade. Lest we become self-righteous. We do not measure a man's regeneration by the tenacity of his personal ambition to live pure. But by all means, because we have been made righteous in Christ Jesus, that is our drive. And that is part of what the pulpit does. So the church is the butchers of the truth. And beloved, the people of Christ and covenant should be your go-to people. We should be each other's go-to people. For prayer, for needs, and not everybody to everyone else. But there needs to be relationships in the body that are formulated. Well, I don't have those yet because you're not available enough to the body at large in order for those relationships to be born and growing. There's nothing more fake than a greeter at a door. There's nothing more disingenuous than a, Welcome to worship, everybody! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Take out your Bibles and turn to this and fill out the card. and Let's do this and let's do that. Hallelujah. We love y'all. Don't even know you are. You see, I'm not mocking that. You know how I am. I get comedic when I do silly things like that. What's genuine is we're together. We're here. And that outside of our homes, we need to have prayer and ministry with each other on mind. The first in our preparations. The first in our priorities beyond the household that we live in. Because that is our covenant together. That is the point of Christ in His gospel. And it's not that we don't do anything for anybody else, but we don't neglect feeding your neighbor's children while your children starve is not okay. Clothing The county next to you, while the people in front of you are naked, is not okay. Let us minister to each other as we also minister to the community around us. And beloved, I have a lot to talk about in our next members meeting, which is going to be in October after service. And I want to strongly encourage everyone to be in attendance because there is a lot that I need to say and a lot that we need to talk about as a church. Intimately. For the good of our future. For the good of our ministry. For the good of your joy. And so as we end our service today, know that I'm teaching and instructing for many purposes, but most importantly, that you would not neglect the body of Christ. That you would not neglect the gospel of and the instructions therein, but that you would also not live in a place of constant guilt because you are doing all that you can do at the moment. Know that you are not judged, but know that you are loved. And I love you with all the affection of Christ, and I pray that in the teaching of His Word, He will teach us all how to love each other in that way, and that we would become a more intimate and glorifying body. To display the grace of God in the lives of one another. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gift of grace, for the gospel, for Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the perfect perfect person, the perfect human, the perfect lamb, the obedient son, the redeemer, the savior, the better bridegroom, the living water, The bread of life. The one who comes down from heaven to give life. And Father, in our greatest of lives, if there were millions to live, we would never, ever, ever stand in righteousness that belongs to ourselves. We would never, ever, as we know from Your Word, be able to live according to Your commands. But Father, we live righteous before You because it is not of our own. We stand righteous before You because the perfection of Jesus is credited to us. Therefore, You have passed over our sins and placed them on Him. His blood has satisfied righteousness. And by grace we stand and are saved before You this day. So let us hear the words of instruction in the tender way in which Your Word brings it. That we may grow into a people that display the truth in our lives as well as in gospel distinctions. And Father, that we may be patient and loving and gentle and prayerful in every circumstance. Especially when things are not going the way that we think they should. Let us worship you again and continually. In Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Listening.